0: Namaste. Namaste, everyone, and namaste, anonymous people outside in the, in the real world. Uh, we've been studying the Guru Gita, and we have a number of questions that were left over from that we didn't get to answer during our classes, and we promised that we would finish them tonight so that we could go on to the next text on Tuesday. Is that right? Yeah, because Monday night is, it's Guru Purnima. And you know it's Sachidananda's birthday. He yeah. was born in honor of the Guru, and every Guru Purnima he comes to share his blessings and his love with us. And this has been going on for a long time, hasn't it? Yeah. And uh, we celebrate Guru Purnima and uh, Sachidananda's birthday at the same time. So uh, it, it, we're going to continue that tradition, and then on Tuesday night we'll begin a discussion of the Kashyap Sutras, which really fun too. You know,
1: let's not get into the sutras. Let's go ahead (laughs) ahead and and ask a question. What what you got online? Okay. So, um, these are old questions, of course. But we have a question from Ambika. Yes, Ambika. Namaste. And it was regarding verse 44 of the Guru Gita, which is, uh, if Shiva has anger, the Guru can remove it, whereas if the Guru has anger, Shiva cannot. Therefore, all efforts should be made to take refuge in the respected Guru. Good advice. So, as disciples and devotees of varied levels of abilities and efforts, how can we be sure not to anger our respected guru? Wow. There are
0: a couple of ingredients that uh, we want to maintain. First is sincerity. You've got to be really sincere about your search. I, don't waste the guru's time. Don't be frivolous. Don't dig many shallow wells. Go ahead and explore the fullness of the Guru's bhavana, their teaching, their intensity of reality. And then take that sincerity and cultivate the practice. Listen to what the Guru has to say and see how you can employ that in your lives. That would be the greater advice. You take the message from the guru, you take the example from the guru, and then you see how you can weave it into the discipline of your life. So we have sincerity, and then we have have truth. Don't try to show the guru how knowledgeable you are. (laughs) Please, don't waste your time or the Guru's time trying to show that you know more than you really do. Because you know how much you know. And it's not a lot. Huh. It really is <laughs> I know because I know the Guru. And if you know the Guru, you know what she knows. And it comes through her bhavana, it comes through her being, it comes through her example, it comes through her behavior. So we have the sincerity, we have following the example, and we have speaking and acting in truth. Fulfill your commitment. Make a commitment with a big C. Not with a little C, I love you as long as it lasts. Make a commitment with a big C that says, hey, we're in this for the long haul guru and a disciple is like a a mirror and a reflection. I mean, it's it's not transitory. It's not temporary. It's a, a real commitment with a real big C. You want to make that commitment to speak the truth, to act in truth, to listen to truth, to watch her example, to see how you can employ that teaching in your own life, how you can make yourselves, all of us, how we can make ourselves into the reflection of the Guru. That's what a shish is. Uh, you got a mirror and you got a reflection. And that's the relationship between Guru and disciple. And if you aren't a reflection of the guru, then how can you call yourself a disciple? Why would you want to? What a waste of time. What a a foolish exercise uh, that you're going through to convince yourself you're a disciple when you're not interested in reflecting the example. So those are the three things, Amika, that you want to to maintain the sincerity of your search, the commitment to your search, and really inculcating the example of your guru of the into your own lifestyle, into your own behavior. So those are the things that we can
1: do. We have a question from Saranya in Walnut Creek. Yes, Namaste, Saranya. What is the best way for someone to deepen their relationship with the guru, especially if they are sometimes far away? Well, we're never far away. If the guru is in
0: your heart, then get rid of that concept right away. I mean, you've got to say that the guru is with me and I'm with her, and she's going to follow me wherever I go, and she's watching. Do you know the, this <laughs> Rudraksha? Raksha? It's the eyes of Shiva. Uh, Ah, Rudra's, his eyes are with you. He's coming with you around your neck. I mean, wherever you go, there's nowhere to hide. Uh, So, uh, he... Please, don't think that the guru is far away. Think that the guru is near. And every time you sit for puja, especially, Om Guru Om Param Guru Vyondhama, I bow to all the gurus in the lineage that brought me to this state of knowledge, this state of knowingness, so that I can reflect the example of the guru in my own behavior.
1: It's me to love.
0: It needs the intellect of love. Oh, Mom says it in a, in a phrase, and I go on for hours. Uh, we should let Mom conduct the class. Would you please stop channeling to me and just speak your mind?
1: Uh-oh.
0: Sorry. Oh. Don't be sorry. So we want to reflect that attitude. Don't think that the Guru is far away. Think that she's near and dear and she's with you and you can consult her. Just put a a moment of interlude between stimulus and response. And don't think, I have to respond immediately. Think, what is the most appropriate response? I don't want to win the argument, I want to make the peace. I want to find a way to make a harmony for all of, our, all of our objectives so we all come into that harmony. I don't want to re... I can't afford the luxury of responding emotionally. I'm either going to lose my job or I'm going to lose my head. If I do it with colleagues, she'll cut on the dotted line. If I do it with my boss, she'll fire me instantly. If I keep my presence of mind, then there's a possibility I could think, what is the appropriate response from my center? This gentleman is a lawyer, and he goes to court, and he has to think immediately. Uh, what's the what's the best reply to get? The information I need. He can't respond emotionally. He has to respond intelligently. Could we all take a moment to discriminate what is the intelligent response to this circumstance? What is the intelligent reply to this situation? And in doing so, we'll give appropriate responses designed to accomplish our goals To fulfill our objectives. We'll start taking control of our lives instead of just responding emotionally and then having to deal with the mess that we create. And you know how much it takes to clean up the mess once you've made it. Uh, You probably were double time to clean up the mess rather than if you took the time initially to plan what is my goal, what is my objective, what do I want to get, what's the probable outcome from this circumstance. If we could plan that and think about it, what do I want to get? What response do I want to evoke from the individuals that I'm negotiating with? Now, I don't have to be right all the time. I have to get what I want. That's even better. And if I know what I want, I know I am there, and I know what I'm willing to give up in order to get what I want, it's an academic exercise. It doesn't have to be an emotional response. I can start taking control of my life and planning. Where do I want to go? What do I want to do when I get there? And who do I want to be with when I'm there? And what should we be doing? I think those would be some of the ways that we can cultivate that attitude of being in the presence of the Guru more and more frequently. Have a game plan
1: for life. We have a question from Usha in Salt Spring Island.
0: It's Canada. Canada. In, in Canada. Oh, Usha in Canada. Okay. Namaste,
1: Ushama. That's apparently a place in Canada. Yes, I understand. Shiva, Chandima, Sri Ramakrishna are not in human bodies. Should one always have a guru in a human body as well? And what is the difference, if any?
0: There's a big difference. There are many disembodied spirits who are tremendous inspirations in our lives. And they have added through history and literature and all the stories told about them so many things that we can come into an intuitive relationship with them. But we can't really consult them on every move of our lives. We can't pa- pa- pattern our lives after the life of Ramakrishna. Only a very, very few can. But Ramakrishna grew up in Samadhi. And how many of us have grown up in Samadhi? Shri did. But otherwise, the rest of us, we need to... G- Follow an example, someone who can show us how do you go there, and what, do you, what does it take to get there, what do you have to give up in order to get there, what do you have to leave behind in order to experience that, that state of consciousness. And ultimately, you've got to leave everything, especially all your attachments and all your ego. All the concepts of I and mine, they can't go with you into Samadhi. So you have to have a physical example unless you came out of the womb like Veda Vyasi. He, he took birth, he started to grow. He said, Mother, thank you very much for being the vehicle of my entrance into this worldly incarnation. And now I'm going off to translate the Vedas and to divide, I'm Veda Phyas. I'm going to divide the Vedas into four po- books and I'm going to write uh, 18 Puranas and I'm going to translate, I'm going to write the Mahabharata and translate. That, that was not fun. Oh wait, <laughs> there are certain Veda Vyases that take birth with that knowledge immediately. There are certain individuals like Srima who can have a relationship with a disembodied guru, but still we all need somebody to come and give us a little shove and a little kick in the pants and a little whatever they can do to inspire us and empower us so that we begin to perform the sadhana so that we can leave those attachments behind. We start to reorganize the values of our lives. And we look at our attachments, we look at this egotism and possession, and say, wow, is that really me? Is that the me I want to become? All of these bundle of attachments? Or could I become the highest expression of Dharma? Could I become the, the person who sits in Samadhi without any attachment?" For that, for we worldly folk, we need a physical guru who has a body, who shows us how to cook, who shows us how to worship, who shows us how to, to meditate, who shows us how to go deeper and deeper inside. We learn meditation by the, observing the form of the guru. How, how does she sit with stillness inside and out? Puja but Padam. We learn puja from sitting by the feet of the guru. She shows us how to worship. How do you recite the mantras? Where do you put the flowers? Where do you pour the milk? What what do you do when you worship? Mantra Mulangaro Bakyam. Her words are mantras to us because we take them into our heart. And we want to learn from her so we regard every word that comes out as instruction. Something that can improve my life. Something I want to pay attention to so I can inculcate that behavior in my performance throughout life. Moksvalam guru tripa. Liberation. Self-realization is the grace of the Guru and grace is what you do is what you get. So if you live in accordance with her teachings, and you meditate upon the form just the way she meditates, and if you learn the puja by sitting at her feet and watching what she does, reading what she does, she read, wrote it down in a book. She put it there. She put, put it. Uh, the, she, she gave the class on it. The, what's the meaning? What's the meter? What's the pronunciation? What's the what's the uh, grammar? What's the history? What's the philosophy? It's all being expressed there. I get to learn it all from her. I'm not just learning a bunch. Of sounds that I don't know what they mean. Mokshmalang Guru Kripa. I get self realization from doing what the Guru has taught me
1: to do. We have a question from Sadhana Shakti, formerly in Washington. (laughs) And presently? (laughs) I hope so. There she is. All right. Namaste. Ma surrendered to Ramakrishna from birth, so how do we actually reflect her when we have not had that surrender from our birth? Well, you just got
0: born now. (laughs) There's a rebirth.
1: (laughs) You're just a baby,
0: a little child, an infant child, just come into the spiritual life. That's what a sacred thread means. It means you're dvija. You're born twice. You're born once from the womb of mother and second time from the womb of wisdom and when you see the example of your guru and she did come out of the womb and say i'm following ramakrishna's path we didn't we came out of the womb and he slapped us on the backside, and we said ouch is that what i have to look forward to <laughs> ah, all right well now Along comes Sri Ma into our lives and she reflects this example of purity and clarity and understanding and service and love and generosity and she has no desire for possession or egotism at all. All she does, she woke up four o'clock this morning, she started cooking, and she put everyone's name on the box and she filled up the boxes. Everybody got a box of lunch, and then she put big pots. She cooked for everybody and fed everybody and then did the puja. And then she came over to the temple and started doing puja here. And then she went back there and cooked some more. And then she came back here and chanted with us. And look at the rhythm of her life. How can you inculcate that ideal, that bhavana, that attitude into the rhythm of your life? I mean, you have many, many functions all through the day, and you wear many, many uniforms, just like our one goddess. Uh, Sometimes uh, she's Saraswati when we want knowledge, and sometimes she's Lakshmi when we want to define our goals. Sometimes she's Kali when we want to give up our darkness. Sometimes she's Gauri when we want to illuminate our light. She's one goddess. You are one woman who who wears a sari to the temple and she wears jeans to the school and she wears a suit to work and she she wears a ball gown to the ball and she wears a tennis suit to the tennis game. And you have so many different appearances for the various roles that you play in life. So does our one guru. So does our one God. And so, as you assume these different roles, remember: in the center is the same being. You were there when you were a little baby. You were there when you were a teenager. You're still there today. And the chances are, if you survive, you're going to be there tomorrow. <laughs> you're you're just still there. And keep the concept of that center. That. That love, that Bob, that eternal soul is with you all the time. No matter what dress you wear, no matter what function you perform, you are with you. You're still there. So now get into a love affair with that being, that eternal being that is always there with you. And you'll come closer and closer to the
1: understanding of where Sreema is coming from. We have a question from Nanda, about four feet to your left.
0: (laughs) Wow, you have a way of sneaking up on me. So, should the changes in sadhana that we make, should it be slow and steady for a lasting effect uh, in our life, or will drastic changes just backfire? Uh, My guru is really clever. He said, can you sit for five minutes a day? I said, yes, I can. He said, okay, next month add another five minutes. And that was really easy. At the end of two months, I was sitting for ten minutes. At the end of one year, I was sitting for an hour. That was 42 years ago. (laughs) And everyone says I'm full of sit. (laughs) A little bit. (laughs) At least I can sit for a long, long time. They say some people are good for some things. Other people are good for other things. Sadhus are good for nothing. They just sit. And they just sit around. So I would suggest the gradual change. If you can chant the Chandi today, then add the, the Priyog tomorrow. Add the Upasanghar next month. Add the Samput the month after that. Add a bigger Samput. You can go to Aksar sh- Samput. It just grows and grows and grows in your sadhana, in your understanding, in your bhavana, in your feeling, in the way you try to reflect the attitudes of the guru. Now take the same principle and add it to your demeanor while you're at work. You're at work. you need a strong willpower. Is that what she needs? Okay, Mom. You need a strong <laughs> willpower. <laughs> Thanks, Mom. <laughs> if you take the attitude that you have at work, now, you are a team captain, and you are a guru, and at work you are trying to inspire the participation of your team to work together, all together, you don't want the glory. All you want is to finish the job and deliver it on time and on budget. So now, as a guru of your team, you're there to inspire and instruct and control and get everybody into the harmony of working together so that you guys can produce your product on time, on budget. Don't think of yourself, I'm the boss, and I'm going to tell you what to do. you got to negotiate with everybody on the team. That includes the gardener, that includes the plumber, that includes the bookkeeper, that includes the other students, whoever is on your team. You want to negotiate with them and bring them into the harmony of your spiritual center. Bring them, empower them. You don't want to demand from them. You want to empower them. Now, of course, there comes a time where you say, you're not working with me. (laughs) Please work with me. Please work with me, because we can do so much together that we can't do apart. So let's work together as a team. And that's what gurus do. They inspire their teams and empower their teams, so everybody can produce for everybody else. And then you get a pavana like we have in this ashram this weekend. Everybody, I mean, everybody's sleeping around. There are no set places to sleep. There's no, everybody's in one room or the other room and you just roll out a mat and go and camp out wherever you find a space. In the same way, you'll empower your team to work together. You take that same behavior slowly, slowly, gradually. These are our goals. These are our time constraints. This is our budget. And now let's focus on achieving the goal. Together, we can do it. And you know what? If we do it, and we're efficient, and we're successful, look at what happens. Everybody gets up and dances. (laughs) They all express that joy. They all feel the spirit is moving within me. And instead of fighting with everybody and struggling with everybody, everybody seems to be in a state of cooperation. How does that work with no leadership? Organic inspiration. I mean, everybody can taste it and feel it and cut through it here. You can see it in the ashram. I mean, the meals just magically appear. Someone just magically goes to Costco and fills up a truckload and brings it back and feeds everybody. It just happens organically. That's the bhavana that you want to take from your spiritual sadhana and apply to your material lives. Inspire your teams, empower your teams. The more you empower the people who work for you, the the greater is the success of the whole team.
1: Now that's the guru working through you. We have a question from Vishveshwar. Namaste, Vish. There he is. <laughs> Everything is the form of the guru. How does this knowledge help us to grow? Wow.
0: There's a term, There's a term called respect. And as soon as you know that everything is the form of the guru, you want to respect everything in the same way you want to respect your guru. Irrespective of the behavior of whatever it is you're respecting. <laughs> you want to show your respect and demonstrate your respect. And how do we show respect? By paying attention. I mean, what do you do when you don't respect someone? You turn them off. Get, where's the remote? <laughs> turn them off. And if you do respect me, you want to focus your attention laser-like. I want to pay attention. I want to absorb every form of communication you wish to share. I'm going to grok your communication. I don't want to just take it in intellectually. So Bish, by showing respect to every form of existence and we come into this harmony Into the unity by seeing the Guru everywhere, we respect everything, we're open to it. We're not closed. We're not putting up our filters, our defenses, our barriers. Uh, Okay, this is my line, you can't cross. No, we want to invite the entire world inside. And as we invite more and more of the world inside, all the barriers fall. And our spirituality didn't erect walls around us to say we're the chosen ones and we're the ones with the knowledge and look at I've got a string around my ear and I'm a Brahmin, and therefore I'm knowledgeable or I'm separate, I'm special. No, I want to say, like mom, this is my family and I love you all and I invite you all and I want you to come in as close as you possibly can. Whole world, come in as close as you possibly can. And I think that would be the way you see the guru in every object.
1: We have a question from Joshua, formerly in Seattle. Presently. in <laughs> Debbie Mandir. My goodness, there he is. <laughs> Namaste. How do we find and maintain the attitude of the guru amidst the ever-changing circumstances and entanglements of day-to-day life? Through efficiency, Joshua, by being efficient in whatever
0: you do, you know that what you're doing, you're doing for your Guru. Now, you don't want to make mistakes. You don't want to get it over with quickly. You want to do the best job you can possibly give and deliver on time, on budget, in the most efficient way you possibly can to demonstrate the sincerity of your commitment. Is there any greater way to to demonstrate the sincerity of your love than by doing what you do efficiently, effectively, paying attention with love in your heart and joy in your mind? And that would be the way that you could show your guru, I really want you to have this. I don't want to do half the job and throw it away and run it down. I'm going to go do something else now, I'm leaving the task halfway unfinished. That's not the demonstration of my sincerity. My sincerity demands that I stay there until the task is done. Unfortunately, some people are like that (laughs) 24-7, they just stay there until the task is done. (laughs) <laughs> and they email me every 15 minutes until it's done. <laughs> Some people are like that. <laughs> well, there are other people that just say, they start this t- a j- a job, and then they, oh, wait a minute, i got to do that one, and they start this job, and they, oh, they forget about that one. I'll go over here. Oh, I didn't finish that one. <laughs> they started digging many shallow wells, And they said, oh, I didn't get water. Let's leave this path. Let's go find another guru. (laughs) It's got to be the guru's fault that I did something so stupid. It isn't the guru's fault. It's really the disciple's failure to reflect the fullness of the image of the guru. She got up in the morning and started cooking, and she didn't stop cooking until the food was ready. And she did it with love and with a sense of privilege and with joy. And she said, look, I've got to feed Shiva. And Shiva's got all these kids. And I'm responsible for all the kids that Shiva brought. And so I'm going to cook for them. And I'm going to give them the best thing. Let me see. I'll try a new recipe today. Every day. We can't keep up with her. Joshua, we want to do what we do to the best of our capacity." And that demonstrates, really, that we're in love. That we're thinking about the beloved. We're thinking about the recipient of those actions. We're thinking about, how do I reflect the efficiency? Sadhu, in Sanskrit, means efficient. Someone who is a sadhu is an efficient individual. And I'm requesting you all to become sadhus. Doesn't mean you have to wear orange cloth and (laughs) sit on top of a mountain. But it means you have to have an orange heart. <laughs> and wherever you sit, that's your tapo booming. There you're doing sadhana. That's the austerities that you're performing. It's the efficiency with, the, with which you perform every action you perform. That's what makes a sadhu. So be a sadhu and serve your guru.
1: Question from Shivani.
0: Namaste Shivani! Where's Shivani at? Oh my
1: goodness! Hello there! Can you discuss the relationship between tapasya and conflict? Yeah!
0: <laughs> Boy, can I talk about that! <laughs> Do you know, the conflict of course is when we have many different thoughts in our minds. And we have many different desires. And amongst the multitude of our desires, if you make a hierarchy of the list of your desires and you see them all in conflict with each other, which comes first? Which is more important? Well, when you get to tapasya, that means actually adding heat. Tapas means heat. And light. And tapashya is the process of disciplined application of heat and light so that it purifies. It purifies so that you have only one objective, one goal, one thought. So there can't be any conflict if you are doing tapasya. Now to get to the tapasya, you've got to weed through all the forest of conflicts to say that the tapasya That adding heat and light in order to purify is the most important thing I could do in my life right now. It could be doing tapasya means sitting at a computer terminal and writing stories or doing whatever you're doing. Whatever task upon which you're called to fulfill, that could be your tapasya. If you are one-pointed You're purifying yourself, you're doing it as an expression of love, you're serving the guru, you're adding heat and light, you're illuminated by doing it. You don't notice the passage of time, you're not a clock watcher, you're not saying, oh God, when will this get over so that I can do the next thing I want to do? You're saying, what a privilege to love God by doing what I'm doing. Then it becomes tapasya too. So whatever you can do with one pointed attention, that becomes your tapasya. That becomes your purifying austerity. And as long as you can remain in that, that austerity, in that tapasya, in that discipline, you, you are beyond time. You're beyond duality. And if you're beyond duality, how can there be conflict? The conflict comes when we're back in duality and I say, well, which which task should I do first, this one or that one? But if you're just serving the guru, then you know what are her priorities. (laughs) And you do it according to the list of her priorities. It becomes academic. You don't have to think about it if you surrender. Now remember, in English, Surrender is the last thing you want to do when you're out of bullets and your back is against the wall and the enemy is standing with a gun at your head and you say, I surrender. I beg for mercy. But in Sanskrit, Samarpan is the term we use. arpono. It means I offer myself in equilibrium. Surrender in Sanskrit is the first thing you try to do. It's not like in English where it's the last. It's the first thing we try to do is to surrender by offering ourselves in equilibrium. Ma, you can help me define the hierarchy of my priorities so that I can do them methodically and check them off. It's like going to school and getting the curriculum. And then you go through the curriculum and you check off. I did that class. I did this class. Okay, now what's next? There's a path, a curriculum for life. For sadhu school. Uh, We go to sadhu school. How we learn how to become efficient contributors to the mission of the Divine Mother. if that's your goal, then allow her to guide you. She could be your guidance counselor to guide you through the curriculum of the university. Sadhu you.
1: You. Sadhu. Sadhu. Yes, please. We have a question from Ambika. Namaste, Ambika. If it is important to set goals, do we set our goal, our life goal to be one with the guru, or do we, or do we set smaller goals along the way? Accepting small successes until we reach the final attainment. Both! You need an, a near-range plan, a
0: medium-term plan, and a long-range plan. You can't just live in the present. You can't just live in the future. You have responsibilities on because We all do. On every level, we have to provide for all the mistakes that we made in the past. Got to pay off all the, those debts. Clean up your credit cards. And then you've got to maintain yourself in the present, and then you've got to provide for future. Now, you've got to work three jobs. You know, if you work one job, you're going to stand still. You've got to work three jobs, past, present, and future. All of us do. If we just work one job, well, what do we do? We're maintaining ourselves in the present. Well, you've got an, a responsibility to build the future so that you, you fulfill the first principle of being a sadhu, never, ever allow yourself to become a burden to anyone else. You're not allowed that luxury. Only rich kids are. You've got the responsibility to maintain yourself in the present and to be able to continue that into the future. So all of us have to work three jobs, not just one job. You've got to work to clean up your past karma. You've got to work in order to maintain ourselves in the present. And we have to be prepared for a future for ourselves. You can't just be content to work one job. Where will you go? We all know that to get any progress, you've got to accomplish 25 hours of productivity in a 24-hour day. If you do eight hours of work in an eight-hour day, you stand still. If you complete 24 hours of work in a 24-hour day, you'll exhaust yourself and you won't have any profit. In order to get a gain, you have to accomplish 25 hours of productivity in a 24-hour period. Then you get an hour a day. (laughs) And now that's profit. Now that could be invested in your material world, it could be invested in your spiritual world. Uh, The the last place you want to throw it away is on sleep. You need as much sleep as you need and then the rest is just laziness. So get up and get to work. And learn, do you know if you learned a mantra, two mantras a week, in one year you would know more than 90% of the Brahmins who sit in the temples of India. In seven years, you would know the entire Chandi without touching a book—seven hundred verses, and fifty-four of them say Namasthe.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty good one. We got to pass on that one. Uh, do you know a hundred and seven of them say? Rishi <laughs> Rubacha. Think of how many mantras you've got already.
1: You've got a head
0: start. <laughs> So if we would just apply ourselves and be content with small gains, a little bit of time, every day, being consistent and trying to invest our time wisely in our present productivity and our future spirituality, we're going to prepare a beautiful present and a great future. And that's the exciting part, is we have something to look forward to. We're going someplace. We know where we're trying to get to. Laksha is a goal. And Lakshmi is the ultimate goal. And she is the goddess of wealth because your goal is what you value, and your values are your wealth. And Lakshmi is the goddess of wealth because she's the goddess of the definition, the Lakshma. The lakshan of your laksha. Wow. Those guys are really subtle. The, the definition of your goal and the path to the goal and your wealth are all one and the same. When you worship Lakshmi, you don't just give flowers and sing to the goddess of money.
1: <laughs>
0: She's the goddess of defining your values and the define, defining your path and defining your objective and you're defining your goal and then defining your process and then showing you how to go step step. By step to the achievement of that ultimate goal. And it's not just what's going to happen tomorrow. But what's going to happen to us for the rest of our lives. And where we're going in the next lifetime to. We're not born again Hindus. We're born again and again and again Hindus. Uh, So when you make a plan, don't make it just for a hundred years. Make it from lifetime to lifetime to lifetime. And that's the wealth of Lakshmi. Yes, please. Do you mean one mantra a day or, I
1: mean, a week?
0: I one. said two, two mantras, mantras a week, a but week. Will you take it any way you two, want.
1: Two mantras a week or one uh, two whole verses a week?
0: <laughs> Whoa. Okay, go for it. Yeah, two verses. Two verses a, a week. Ah. Om Agni Jyoti Rabi Jyoti Chandra Jyoti Stadevacca. Jyoti sabutamodibi dipo, I am tam, one verse. Asha dipo, oming ring cling, chamundaibi chain. Yes, please. How does one clean up the past? (gasps) Whoa! (laughs) Well, we all know what we did. We all, I mean, we've got the history right with us, it's not going to go away. So the first thing you've got to do is kind of look at it. A lot of us call that meditation. We sit with our eyes closed and we go to the movies. (laughs) (laughs) And we go to the movies and we say, Oh God, what did I do that for? Why? If only I hadn't! If only I didn't! And we see that. And we see, well, where can I fix it? Can I make amends? Can I sweep it under the rug? Can I hide it someplace? Can I just throw it in the fire and disregard? Can I take the lesson from it and employ that lesson in the future so I don't make the mistake again? What did I learn from that experience? How can I expunge that mistake? And then after a time, and it does take time, it'll take some time to look at all those old movies that we've stored in our storehouse, uh, our repository of knowledge, and we look at all those old movies and after a while you've seen them so many times, you cease to act emotionally or react emotionally. You just look at it and say, oh I know that one, <laughs> I remember that movie, so After a while it just ceases to disturb us, it ceases to bother us. It, it, we, it, it, it's like the verse from the Bhagavad Gita, even as all the rivers flow into the sea and the ocean never overflows, in the same way, all the thoughts flow through the mind of a meditating Muni and the Muni is free from reaction. In the same way, you'll look at all the old movies and the tapes and the the videos of your collection and every one of us has a collection from day one that we can remember and some of us from many births previous and we go through all those tapes and we go through all the movies and we see which which ones have some useful information which ones have some inspiration which ones have some uh, uh, possibility for me to make a correction in my life how can i take a different path because of the knowledge that i've gained from that situation and the rest we throw in the fire and defuse all the emotional responses that come from watching that same stupid movie over and over and over again. We just, after you watch it for a while, you just stop reacting to it. And you just watch the movie without qualification, without self-conceit and without self-deprecation. And Chandi comes along, and she cuts off their heads, and she says, here they are. You don't have to respond emotionally anymore. You can just watch the movie free from reaction. And then you're ready to
1: meditate. Yes, please. Sometimes in meditation, we do have a silent peacefulness, but we're not necessarily concentrating on anything. Is that valuable, just to sit in silent peacefulness? (laughs)
0: <laughs> yep, <laughs> that's valuable. In fact, that's the goal.
1: You know, we have so many thoughts
0: throwing, flowing through our minds. The silent peacefulness is the space between two thoughts. And what we do by cultivating the practice of meditation is to make that gap a little wider and a little wider and a little wider. The British had it down perfectly. They said, mind the gap. Yeah. Watch the gap between the thoughts. Mind the gap. Make it bigger and bigger and bigger. Because." That state of peacefulness, that state of silence is where you really get the, you get to see the screen upon which all the movies are being reflected. We go to the movie theater and we get so entranced by the images on the screen that we forget the screen. So what we want to do is teach ourselves and train ourselves to look at the screen. And remember that the images flowing across the screen are the reflections of maya. That's the image. That's not the reality. The reality is the screen upon which the images are being reflected. That's the meditation. That silence. That peacefulness.
1: Yes, please. We have a question from Julia. Namaste, Julia! Please talk about how she acts in our lives, giving us what we need, when we need it. Even though we are offering our best, we don't see that she is giving us everything. Have you had times when you look back and realize what you were being given?
0: Oh, Julia, I see so many blessings flowing through my life. The very privilege to be able to sit here and talk about these things with all of you, to me, is a blessing that she gave me. There is no question in my life that she is giving me blessing after blessing after blessing. And every time I go to breakfast, I get a blessing. You see, I'm a well-blessed son. (laughs) And I get more blessings too. Every time I write a book, every time I publish an article on the website, every time I get to do anything, it's the grace of the Guru which brings me to the privilege of serving her by doing what I do. And I promise you, if she weren't here, I would be up in a tree in, or or under a tree, as it may be, uh, in the Himalayas, and I wouldn't be writing and I wouldn't be talking on a webcam. Uh, so I consider it the greatest privilege that she keeps me here and she allows me to share and then one day she's going to say,
1: okay, shut up. <laughs> yes, please. We have another question from uh, Saranya. I have heard that the disciple does not choose the guru, but that the guru chooses the disciple. Can you elaborate on that?
0: No! (laughs) I can't. The guru is chosen by the disciple according to the desires of the disciple. If a disciple desires to one day be rich and famous and sit on a throne and look out over a sea of people and wave a peacock feather and give blessings and and wear ornaments and jewelry and drive a big fancy car, then she'll choose that kind of a guru. If a disciple is content to be humble and pure and, and give their lives to God and do sadhana and do, spend their lives in religious convocation, then she'll choose that kind of a guru. You see, there are only a few disciples here. Who would come up to the the top of the mountain in order to become a little small fry? sadhu who's doing tapasya uh, 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 without being popular and rich and famous. The ones who want to be pure and clear and centered will come and do this kind of sadhana. You'll choose your guru according to your aspirations. What do you think is pure spirituality? That's what will be your criteria for discovering who your guru is. You'll make the guru by saying, I want to reflect your, your example in my life. That's what makes a guru, that's what makes a disciple. If you don't say, I want to be like you, you're not a disciple. Well, the guru doesn't wander around the world and say, oh, you should be like me. <laughs> I, guru's be, busy being like she is. Why would she go around the world and say, you should be like me? What nonsense. You'll say, wow, well, I want to be like her. It's up to the disciple. The disciple always decides. Disciples make gurus. Gurus do not make disciples. It's impossible. It is a logical fallacy. It cannot be done. A guru can't make him a disciple. If you want to reflect the image that you see, you'll reflect it. You'll begin to study and practice and learn how to breathe and learn how to sit and learn how to chant and learn what it means. And you'll, you'll make yourself into the image of the guru. What's a guru going to do? I want you to be like me. It won't happen. Not until you have that desire. So I can't tell you why Gurus make disciples.
1: Sorry. We have a question from Vivekananda. Oh where? There. Yeah. There. Front row center. <laughs> yes, please. Shiva is the eternal primordial guru, and the Panch Akshara mantra is his mantra. Can you explain each syllable of this mantra and how to go deeper and deeper into its essence? Yes. I can. But it take a bit.
0: I'm cool with that. Okay. Nagendra Haraya, Praloknaya, Basman Garagaya, Na is I bow, and I bow to the Lord of all energy. Ma is the culmination, the perfection of all that is uh, uh, manifested it's all withdrawn into the essence of shiva she si is shanti the perfect peace and war means all manifested existence is withdrawn into the perfect peace of the culmination the Srishti Stiti Pradoi so it comes back to the center I bow to that consciousness of infinite goodness which allows the all creation to dissolve into
1: perfect peace
0: that wasn't too bad
1: huh? a little bit long. we have a question from Julia yes Julia you compare the relationship between a guru and a disciple to an iron and a magnet. When Ma was in Samadhi so much and you came to the house and put your head on her lap to bring her here for all of us, it seems like it was you who was like Shakti and she who was like Shiva. Do a lot you... of people say that. <laughs> <laughs> Do Sorry. our entreaties Do our entreaties bring her into acting to make her come into an active state of involvement with us? Absolutely yes. Julia, the devotion of devotees make
0: God respond. There's no question. If you have devotion and you have purity and you have clarity, you have commitment with the big C, and you have that sincerity, she will come. There is no doubt. We're coming into your house. We found a way in. Even if it was through in cyberspace, through your your, uh, RJ45 cable, we came into your house. Uh, We'll find a way to come in. If you have devotion, if you have clarity of purpose, if you have a clear definition of your goal, of your luxury, if your path is in alignment with ours, we're going to come. You will force God to pay attention to you. Just like every other kid says, Mom, I'm going to cry until you stop everything you're doing and pick me up and pay attention to me. <laughs> All you mothers know, uh, Dad can sit and read the paper and listen to the noise. But at some time, Mom's going to put down everything and pick up the crying child. And that's just the way it works with in cosmic In the cosmic world, the Divine Mother is going to pay attention to the children who need her the most. Who have the sincerity and the clarity and the purity to call her with a pure heart. With real, pure love. She'll show up on their doorstep. Be careful, anytime, night or day. (laughs) It's come as you are. <laughs> she may show up anytime, night or day, ready or not. You called.
1: Uh-oh. Watch out. We have a question from Nanda. Yes, Nanda Ma. If we want to be disciples, should we drop all that we know and start and learn from scratch like you learned from your guru?
0: No! You've been in this business 20 years already with me. <laughs> <laughs> you want to erase all that and start all over again? Boss. <laughs> I won't accept that. <laughs> You're not in the grammar grades anymore. You're not in primary school. <laughs> Get up and take responsibility. You'll teach Sanskrit every Saturday afternoon.
1: <laughs> you blew it, lady. <laughs> uh, just watch out. Yes, please. Question from Shivani. Yes, Shivani. How do we find a balance in taking care of our gurus, performing seva, and taking care of ourselves so that we can continue to perform seva?
0: Wow. There is a balance. It's a good question. Because we have to do it all. We want to do it all. And we really need to do it all. I need to demonstrate to mom that I'm sincere and committed and I'm worthy of receiving greater example. And the first thing I have to do is to make sure that I don't say, Okay, Mom, I'm here and I'm hungry and I'm ready to eat. (laughs) I would come to the ashram and cook something. And maybe even bring something to Mom's house and say, Mom, would you like some of my offering? And whether she eats it or not, she will accept your offering. And believe me, she's got enough mouths to feed that somebody's going to eat it. There's nothing that goes to waste. So you do want to spend some time every day thinking about what you need to do to maintain your own self and your families and your responsibilities and all the obligations to uh, to which you subscribe when you took on a human body. You've got lots of relationships with lots of loose ends, and you've got to tie up all the loose ends. You want to make a contribution to your family. You want to make a contribution to your siblings. You want to make a contribution to your co-workers. You want to make a contribution to your job. And you want to make a contribution to your guru. So think about how to spread myself. When to spend myself a little thicker and when a little thinner. And figure out what's the proper allocation of my time and energy and resources. According to what I have. It's an academic problem. It's just pure math. I've got 24 hours in today's schedule, okay, well, 24 hours, I'm going to be even more efficient. I've got 25 hours of productivity, that's fine. Okay, I can spend one hour for the ashram and for mom. I can spend six hours for my boss and my fellow employees. I can spend two hours for my mom and dad and all the kids and all the brothers and sisters. I can spend uh, uh, one hour cleaning up my house and... I'll spend a couple of hours doing puja. And I'll spend an hour on the webcam listening to Swami rant and rave. And I'll spend, you make an, a budget and allocate your time and your mind and your energy and your resources and figure out what is appropriate for you in your circumstances each day. And then along comes Navaratri and say, well, back goes to the winds. Let's, let's broaden our spiritual discipline and we'll reduce our necessity to work in the action. In the, in the world, well, to produce action in the world, we'll reduce that necessity. So then your sadhana will breathe. And sometimes you take in a deep breath and you've got all day to chant the chandi and do the puja. And other times you exhale and I've got to go to work. <laughs> And then you inhale again and your sadhana will breathe. It will expand and it will contract. Don't think there's one rhythm that's going to fit all sizes all the time. You see my life, my life expands and contracts. Just with how much food I eat. (laughs) So in the same way, you're, you're going to expand your saloon according to your capacity and then you'll let it contract and get back to work and fulfill all the obligations so that you can plan ahead, pay it forward, and allow yourself to save up enough so that the next navaratri that comes, I can expand again, reduce the necessity of working. And then after the navaratri's complete, I'll go back to a maintenance schedule. And it'll expand and contract. Don't think there's one sadhana that you're going to observe forever and ever. I've done the Sahasra Chandi Yadya, I don't know how many times, I think it's six times now. In, in, in any event, I, I make a sankalpa to do for three years at one time, one discipline. And not to deviate from that discipline. And it's so far I've been successful at, but when I get through, I've got to expand my, my worldly commitments so that I can save up enough to do it again. It isn't easy. It takes some planning. You know, when you sit for, uh, say we sit for three years or sit for another option, you need a place. You need a supply line, you need the food, you need someone to go to the store for you, you need uh, someone to protect you from all the people that want to come battering down your door and say, oh you've got enough for you, Let's share it with me. <laughs> you, want to, you need uh, so many ingredients in order to perform such a spiritual discipline so you, it'll take you time to gather all those ingredients together. Spend the time, it's a wise investment. And then when you get the privilege to sit in one rhythm of discipline for a specific, spe- specified period of time, then you sit down, you close off, you activate the, all the operations that you put into place, and you curtail or d- decrease the amount of necessity that it takes to go outside to get more. Uh, you, you, you don't go out to eat in restaurants, so you don't need that extra money. You don't go to see the movies because you're so busy watching the one station that you've got, and it, the, it never changes, so you're content not to go to the movies. So then you don't need that money. And you don't, there's so many frivolous desires that just fall by the wayside by virtue of your making that commitment. That sudden culpa to perform a discipline at that time. Oh... Not, it's not one type of sadhana for life. It's about spiritual life. It's not about spiritual practices. The spiritual practices are valuable only insofar as they remind us to live a spiritual life. The goal is spiritual life. It's not to become the best yogi on the block, and it's not to become the best pujari, and it's not to become the, I want to do my life, spend my life doing spiritual practices. No way! I want to live my life, a spiritual life, holistic spirituality. It's about living a holistically spiritual life in which she's the guru of her team at work and she's the disciple to her guru in the temple and she's teaching Sanskrit and she's walking the walk and talking the talk and living the life of a sadhu. She's efficient and full of love and you can see the commitment that she's expressing through everything she does in her life. That's the attitude of a disciple towards the guru. I see that in my guru. And I see that in my friends. And I'm
1: privileged and honored to have friends like you. Namaste.